Well, good morning. My name's Simon. Uh, how about we pray as we come to God's word? Let's pray. We praise you, Lord of all, for sending out the good news of Jesus from Jerusalem to the whole world. Help us now to read, learn, and digest your word, that we may hold fast to the hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour Jesus. Amen. I imagine that if you, uh, like I, turned on the TV at any time over the last year, uh, for more than about 30 seconds, uh, you would have seen the block, either in premiere, rerun, or advert form. It seemed to be everywhere. It seemed to be almost inescapable at times. And after 15-odd seasons of the block, the formula's pretty entrenched. We, we know it pretty well. Teams compete to invade a comically dilapidated building to turn it into an almost more comically luxurious apartment, which is then sold at a profit. And I reckon this is one of the reasons for the show's enduring appeal. We get invested in the process of taking something that's old and undesirable and making it new and desirable again, of restoring it, so that it can fulfill the purposes of its creator. Now, it's one thing for that to happen with an apartment, but what about us? Can people go from old to new? Can people be restored to life and, their, and relationship with their creator? And well, I think over the past few weeks, as we've looked at Acts 1 to 6, uh, we've received an emphatic yes to that question. People can go from old to new. We've seen people made new by the gospel in Jerusalem, despite Jewish opposition. And today we zoom out from Jerusalem. Perhaps you can see it up there uh, on the screen. We zoom out from Jerusalem and answer the same question as it applies to non-Jews in Judea and Samaria. And once again, persecution forms the backdrop of this history. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, look with me at Acts 8, verse 1. Uh, it reads, On that day, so that's the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, the pairing of persecution with scattering in verse 1 is a kind of biblical shorthand that ratchets up the tension in the passage by signaling a threat to God's people. After all, scattering is the opposite of God's work of gathering his people together to enjoy his blessing under his rule. It promises to question whether the gospel will survive to bring new life in Judea and Samaria, which is to ask, does persecution work? Does persecution stop the gospel? This is a question that hangs over the beginning of the passage. You scan down from verses 1 to 4, Saul's persecuting Christian communities around Jerusalem, until we read in verse 4 that those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It seems far from stifling the gospel, persecution accelerated its spread. Uh, yet it's important not to overstate the role of cause and effect here. Verses 1 and 25 insist that the apostles continued the mission in Jerusalem 
and partnered with everyday evangelists like Philip to reach Samaria. Yes, the gospel spread through scattering as a result of persecution, but it also spread under persecution. Isn't it amazing that something that's intended to thwart God's plan, God uses to grow his kingdom? God's use of evil for good shows us that human sin manifest in persecution was never prerequisite to the nations receiving new life in Christ. Rather, it formed the context in which the unstoppable gospel spread, with God in control the whole time. Now, with that context in mind, let's circle back to our question. Could the Samaritans go from old to new? Can we go from old to new? Now look with me at verse 5. Here we read that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, for initial readers of Acts, this is a moment laced with anticipation. The language of Messiah is significant because it alludes to that especially Jewish idea of Israel's long-promised saviour. This saviour was widely believed by first-century Jews to be uniquely committed to Judah's ancestors and not the successor state of Israel's northern kingdom, Samaria. Jews rejected Samaritans for having abandoned Yahweh in favor of the gods of the nations with which they'd assimilated. The antipathy is documented in John 4.9, where John explicitly says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Yet look at what we've heard in Acts. In Acts, we see Philip taking the good news to Samaria to the so-called traitors and apostates. It was a big moment. And read on. Philip was met with a big reception. Verses 6 to 8 tell us that when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Here we see God using signs to verify the good news of Jesus that Philip proclaimed. Now, this practice is explained in relation to Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, here we read, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. But it also raises a kind of awkward question. You know, should we expect these signs today? Uh, is my explanation of the gospel right now illegitimate because I haven't begun by healing anyone up here in front of you all? What do you think? Seems like a silly question in some ways, but many churches, uh, like, for example, Bethel Church in California, I would actually say yes. Genuine gospel proclamation should be accompanied by miracles. That's the evidence the gospel's true. Um, but I think the Bible actually gives us a clear and emphatic no, and we need to be a little bit careful of this. And I say this because throughout the latter half of Acts and the remainder of the New Testament, uh, signs are the exception, not the rule. They signal key moments of fulfillment of that Acts 1-8 promise that the gospel would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. Our example of signs in verses 6-8 to eight fits with this pattern and confirms that the Samaritans were in full communion with God's people. Thus, these signs show us that new life in Christ isn't restricted to Jews, 
You, me, the Samaritans, anyone can access it. Because it isn't about your nationality. It's about where your trust, where your faith lies. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 shows us how the Samaritans were amazed by sorcery. They were initially trusting in it. But then in verse 12, we read that as they believed, they, sorry, as they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This idea is reinforced in 1 John 3.23, which testifies that this is his, God's, command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So how do the Samaritans have new life? It was by believing in the name of Jesus Christ and in that name alone. Exactly the same way as Jews or anyone else receive new life. And it really is that simple. Let's look again at how this worked. Verse 12 provides a summary of the more detailed process of conversion that plays out in Acts 2 to 4 as Peter spoke in Jerusalem. In our example, it begins with Philip's proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. That's followed by the hearers believing that news and then being baptized. And that's about it. That's the formula for new life. That's all there is to it. God has done all the work in Jesus. New life means trusting in the good news that Jesus died on a Roman cross to take the punishment for your sins and restore you to right relationship with God. That's the key. But it doesn't end there. Verses 14 to 17 in our passage show us that new life also entails receiving the Holy Spirit. We read that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this account is both typical and atypical of the life of a new believer. Now let me explain what I mean. It's typical in that new life through faith in Jesus always involves the believer receiving the Holy Spirit. In John 14 to 16, the Holy Spirit is described as our advocate before the Father, while Paul calls it a a deposit guaranteeing new life, eternal life, in 2 Corinthians 5. We can clearly see the Spirit's essential. He's not negotiable. He grows our trust in Jesus to enable us to be more like him. But what about then the atypical aspects of verse 14 to 17? As we read... Did you notice how verse 16 tells us that the Samaritans didn't receive the Holy Spirit upon belief, contrary to the New Testament pattern? And they only received the Spirit when Peter and John placed hands on them. What's going on here? How can someone believe in Jesus without the Spirit? The answer the New Testament gives is pretty simple. They can't. The key here is to note Now in verse 14, Peter and John were sent to Samaria to verify that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God. And this verification was done in a really obvious way 
through the Spirit coming upon the Samaritan believers. The event parallels the initial pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2, and it signifies God's acceptance of the Samaritan people group rather than the beginning of God's work in them. Thus the Samaritans, the black sheep of Israel, were accepted by God. And on that basis, they were publicly and graphically endorsed by the apostles through the laying on of hands as full members of God's gathered people and equal inheritors of new life in Christ. The two-step process clearly demonstrated to first-century Jewish Christians that all who have new life are one in Christ Jesus. And quite frankly to me, this is one of the really exciting reasons why new life is so great. Because it restores people of all backgrounds to right relationship with God and joins them into a new global gathering of God's people. Now, new life lived to the glory of God must be the goal of all Christians, including us here at Gladesville. But what about people who struggle to leave their old life behind? struggle to change their life to match their confession of faith. If you're like me, um, then I imagine you can think of many instances where living the new life in Christ appears a lot easier than it is. Where the old life of rebellion against God is deceptively attractive, so much so that it undermines our faith. And this is not just a problem for us today. I'm a key figure in our passage, Simon the Sorcerer, struggled with just this issue. We're introduced to Simon in Acts 8, verse 9, where we read that he'd practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. When we read that, what's your initial reaction to the passage? Where might Simon's attachment to his old life stem from? I think the description of Simon as a sorcerer acts a bit like a red flag to a bull for us. After all, in our second reading, Deuteronomy 18, it unequivocally condemns sorcery. Verses 10 to 12 read, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. So is that case closed? We can all go home. (laughs) Simon's sin of sorcery is a problem, and by extension, his situation is irrelevant to us, unless you're engaged in sorcery, of course. Let's dig a little deeper, though, before we come to that conclusion. Um, The term used to describe Simon as practicing sorcery is actually applied only two other times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 13, in the negative, to talk about a false prophet, Bar-Jesus of Paphos, while in Matthew 2, it's used neutrally in reference to the Magi who attend Jesus. This means we need to be just a little bit cautious blaming Simon's failure to shed his old life on sorcery alone or any other specific sin. Rather, we need to remember 
that we're all condemned sinners under God's wrath before receiving new life in Christ. And Simon's larger problem seems to be that his response to the gospel as it confronts his sorcery, his response to the gospel as it confronts his sorcery is wrong. Instead, he relies on his old life for his identity. See verse 9, he in fact boasted in it. He and I'd venture us too, if we're being honest, have a peculiarly strong attachment to pre-conversion identities, ways of seeing ourselves that are actually incompatible with new life in Christ. When we look to ourselves, our old selves for our identity, whether it be our status, our money, our family, our gender or sexuality or a host of other attributes, like sorcery, we place our trust in something other than Jesus, who we saw earlier is the only name that saves. Now, this doesn't actually prevent a public profession of belief. Look at verse 13. It says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. But it does compromise the object of our belief. In Simon's case, this meant that his belief was divided between Jesus and sorcery. To put it another way, he was kind of partially converted. I keep looking at verse 13. We read, Simon followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Why do you think Simon follows Philip? Is it out of a love of Jesus? Or a desire to partner with Philip in sharing the gospel? Or something else entirely? While Simon responded to Jesus, verse 13 tells us that he certainly placed his trust in signs and miracles. At best, he had a kind of prideful Jesus way of thinking, where his magic, his greatness, secured his salvation, maybe in combination with Jesus' death and resurrection. This kind of belief is a big problem for Simon and for us if we share his way of thinking, because Jesus plus doesn't save. Do you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? Is Jesus the only object of your belief, or do you look to someone or something else? You know, is it good works? I'm a decent person. God will let me into heaven. Uh, Do you think the institution of the church can save you? That blending in with the group will cause God to just kind of overlook unrepentant sin? Or are you a little like Simon in the passage? Do Do you put your faith primarily in signs and wonders rather than actually trusting in the gospel of the Lord Jesus? After all, Simon's mistake was a deceptively simple one. He failed to recognize what signs Philip's miracles were for. Um, Signs, critically, are for pointing. They're for pointing to other things. And in this case, pointing to the legitimacy of Jesus as the Messiah, the promised king, the one in whom we must trust for our salvation. You know what? Signs only work when you pay attention to them, when you pay attention to what they point to. Um, Just imagine being so caught up appreciating that stop sign just down at the bottom of Jordan Street that you shoot straight through the intersection. It's not going to end well. 
Uh, you could certainly try to blame the sign. You could say it wasn't big enough, or red enough, or in the middle of the road enough. Um, but ultimately, it's an issue of user error. The problem lies with you, the driver. You misuse the sign by prioritizing it over the message it communicated. And it's the same with Simon. Simon's identity in his old life was in his sorcery, and he brought that fascination into new life in Christ, dividing his beliefs such that he followed the sign instead of the Savior. Let's read on from verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. In verses 18 to 21, Simon still clearly misunderstands the role of signs and miracles in the giving of the Spirit. Instead, Simon's old life as a sorcerer, a man who traded on superstition, creeps to the fore once again, and he sees the Spirit as an avenue to quite literally possess the great power of God that the Samaritans wrongly proclaimed him as in verse 10. For Simon, the Holy Spirit was more magic than miracle. It was about control and prestige for his own gain, rather than the humble reliance on God's sovereign power that characterized the apostles' ministry. And this error gestures towards a broader distinction between faith and superstition in Scripture. Faith, on the one hand, is a rational trust in Jesus, while superstition is an irrational reliance on a system of tricks, of kind of life hacks, that supposedly coerces God to act on your behalf. Moreover, it's an error that we need to still be watchful for here at Gladesville. Uh, Simon, he professes a desire to get involved in ministry. Uh, and I know many of us lead and serve here at Gladesville for God's glory. Um, but let me say, uh, if you're motivated to do ministry for the sake of money, or prestige, or power, please don't. Don't try to co-opt God's work for your gain. That's corrupt religion. It's opposed by the living God, and it has no place among his people. In fact, Peter challenges Simon on exactly this point, trying to buy God's gift with money to coerce the living God in the giving of his Holy Spirit. And this involves some very particular Old Testament language. Let's have a look at it. Simon's money was to perish with him in verse 20. And he was to have no part or share in Peter's ministry in verse 21. And now perish is almost exclusively coupled with the idea of being under God's judgment throughout the Old Testament. I think, for example, of the flood narrative in Genesis 6 and 7. I'm all the consequences of covenant violation in Joshua 23. Uh, meanwhile, Joshua 22, verses 24 to 27, warns against having no share 
in the Lord or his people. It's something to be avoided. Throughout the passage, Peter's language shows us that Simon's sinful desire to preserve his old life, his old prestige, was incompatible with the call to trust in Christ alone. But that kind of leaves us with the question, what was Simon's motivation? Why do this? Why trade relationship with God and eternal life for what he kind of saw as another party trick? Look with me at verse 21, because I think Peter gives as an answer uh, that's real cause for reflection. In verse 21, Peter diagnoses the root of Simon's sin as his heart. And it's the same for us. The heart of the human problem truly is the human heart. And God knows our heart. He knows our heart intimately. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Here we read, the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knew Simon's heart. He knows my heart. He knows your heart too. So what's going on in your heart right now? How has your disposition towards God been over the past week? Has it been joyful and thankful for new life in Christ, despite the challenges that our, our society, our city is facing? Or has it been resentful that following Jesus has meant leaving the old life behind? Leaving behind things that you, you still feel attached to? I can't answer these questions for you. And all I can do is encourage you to keep being critical of your desires and motivations. Asking whether they reflect faith in Jesus. Because Romans 1 is clear that when left to its own devices, the human heart seeks out sin every single time. We also need to keep doing what Peter instructs Simon to do from verse 22. Peter says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. Prayerful repentance must be central in our lives. This means that we're regularly confessing our sinful desires, our rebellion, and asking for forgiveness from God. It also means trusting in the saving work of Jesus on the cross and doing a U-turn in our lives, leaving the old life behind. Not partly, not halfway, but fully and rejoicing as it disappears in the rearview mirror. We've got every reason to do this. Because new life with Jesus as Lord is just so, so much better. It's living in relationship with God. 
as his people. So is this what repentance looks like for you? Is it determined? Is it a complete 180 degree turn? Are you committed to and invested in our church family and our city repenting? Going from old to new, being restored to life and relationship with their creator? Or, uh, to the best of intentions, tend to end in repentance that's a little like Simon's in verse 24. A mixture of ambivalence, resentment, and responsibility shifting. Uh, Dare I say it, motivated by avoidance of judgment rather than faith and love in Christ. Let's pray. Merciful Lord, You alone can change the sinful desires of our hearts. Teach us to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that among the changes and chances of this world, we would thank and praise you for new life in Christ every day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.